I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. You're listening to Muses and Stuff, the podcast that celebrates those who live, love, and breathe rock and roll. From the incredible groupies, girlfriends, and wives who went after what and who they wanted, to the journalists, photographers, and other behind-the-scenes characters who play such an important part in rock and roll history. We are your hosts, Shanti and Lynx. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. for three years now oh and i lived in halifax oh um, very interesting for four or five years before wow. coming here wow did and you go to school there uh no i went to university in peterborough oh interesting yeah very which interesting. is also a nice little music community yeah. and then halifax because i heard that it was like a bigger peterborough and oh i had and not heard that comparison yeah yeah so uh good good music town mm-hmm. good music city Work my way up to Toronto because yeah, I couldn't okay. just jump from from small town, actually no. small town outside of Sudbury to here. So wow. I made it and, and feels good. Very good. Well, Lynx and I wanted you to know that we both read your book. <gasps> and Thank you so much. Um, absolutely so nice. amazing. One of the things that we do for our podcast mm-hmm. is we read uh, books written by women. So oh. anything from... Oh, who have we done? Like, off the top of our head. Oh, and wow. We just did Ann Moses. She like oh, ran Tiger Beat magazine. Yes. Very cool. Yeah. So, yeah, we, uh, we like to read these books by like amazing women who mm-hmm. are sort of like in the industry, either on stage or backstage. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. But yeah, your book was incredible and we very both kind. Like laughed and cried. I cried. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Especially like with your animals and oh my they're gosh, they're so funny. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was really relatable. And, uh, your book was so good. We could oh, have done I'm an so episode glad. on it. Yeah. Thank you. But it's nicer to be able to actually speak to the people who wrote the book. So what was that process like for you? That was crazy because I have to say um, when I started writing the book, it's because my manager, who was is downstairs right now, uh, he's been my manager since I was 22 years old. And... Um, he forced me to write a book. I didn't want to write a book. I thought it was a really cheesy idea. I thought, you know, I'm in my 40s. This is stupid. Why am I doing this? And uh, it was embarrassing. You know, just the concept of it to me was like embarrassing. When I would think I was conceited <laughs> or anything, why the hell should I write a book? But then I got it. You know, it was about adoption and it was about missionaries' parents. And at the time, my dad was in palliative care and I was really... Um, I've always had such a close relationship with my folks. I really wanted to uh, do something that would kind of tell a little bit of their stories, too. And I wanted to honor them. They were civil rights activists. I was hugely proud of my dad. And um, it was fun to be able to read my manuscript to him as I went along. Uh, HarperCollins kind of jumped in. And then I was like, oh, shit, this is real. Like, now I actually have to sit my butt down. And that was the hardest part was just sitting still. It's not my nature to sit still anywhere for any length of time. I never had a TV. Don't like watching TV. Don't like movies. Don't want to sit still. And to, so to sit and write was not something that was um, very comfortable for me. Writing the material was easy because they say write like you talk. I never shut up. I talk all the time. So it was that was so funny. That too. wasn't a problem. But and, and the the actual content, like some of the more um, emotionally vulnerable tales, were not a problem because I had been writing about them in lyrics for so long. So it was like everybody already knew my shit. Um, the problem was that I hand wrote everything and had to make it into the computer machine, <laughs> which is how I called it. <laughs> and so I didn't understand um, word count. And I didn't understand italics. I didn't understand any of that with typing. So I delivered 250,000 words to HarperCollins who were like, Biffy, <laughs> we wanted 50. And so oh. they whittled it down to 50 from 250. So there was a lot basically on the cutting room floor that I may or may not have thought would have been really relevant or There's super funny. There. Well, and you know, <laughs> you don't have to hand it to my editor. His name is Jim Gifford at HarperCollins, and he's a saint oh. that he had to read through the drivel and shitstorm <laughs> of horrific grammar problems that I had. And the italics, everything I wrote was in all caps because I didn't know how to make italics I just wanted to emphasize a word um and he was just a real he was so patient and he was very kind um you know explained to me no one really cared about how I made the Nepali curry for my dad you know at the airport like some of the stories were not relevant and I was like okay <laughs> um but then when it came out uh just to have that in my hands was uh, something that was really special. And the fact that George Finch, my first boyfriend, wrote the afterword. He just, and the book ends when I just meet Snake, who I eventually married. And George was my best man. 
and my best friend was also my my best man so it was like it was perfect and that would have just been like the sequel (laughs) it was so perfect oh that's so good um i already mentioned you talk about your animals in your book and Mm -hmm. we're called muses and stuff i think it's a muse first that someone has named their pet as one of their inspirations and their muses can you talk a little bit about your relationship with animals and are there any animals in your life now that oh it's so funny well when uh when i was a kid uh, we had a dog named muffin when i was a little kid and then as an adult i think that uh you know one of my roommates had a couple cats and then i was touring for a couple years and then when i was finally I think about 25, I knew that I wanted to have dogs in my life again and just kind of happened to wind up with Nicholas. I didn't necessarily think that I wanted a Maltese. Uh, It wasn't in my mind that I wanted this dog, but it just kind of circumstances happened and he was in the newspaper with this uh, old man uh, in Burnaby and that's how we got Nicholas. And then we got Anastasia, his little wife, by accident. Um... I guess going in, I didn't really anticipate that it would really fulfill the the nurturing part of my makeup. Um, I didn't, I've never felt like I really wanted to have a baby, even though I always wanted children, because I always had these dogs that were 15 pounds, and I could carry them like babies and dress them in baby clothes with the butts cut out of them, <laughs> which is what I did. And uh, And then when Nicholas passed away, probably... You know, he'd been sick for a long time. Like a lot of people that do senior pets, uh, they're in a dress rehearsal for that death. Um, And about 30 days after Nicholas passed away, although I couldn't drive down the street and see a person like walking their dog wrong or reprimanding a dog or anything like that, I literally would be like going to a murderous rage like how dare they take that dog for granted like just and bawling but I got home like the usual grief shit and uh and I met Snake and his personality is exactly like my dog oh wow I can't hug him he bites me I can't (laughs) hug him he growls uh he eats the same no sauce he just wants meat and rice just like the dogs it's just like everything's the same um my manager and his wife had two Persian cats uh, that were senior cats, and they needed a babysitter. I had it had been a long time since I had had cats or had any contact with cats, but these two little cats like really healed my heart, uh, particularly the older male cat. His name was Schindler, and he was like a 16-year-old Persian cat that was shaved. That just looked like <laughs> the funniest thing, and and he really healed me uh, and he mended my broken heart. So. That I do think is really important for people to stay around animals. Now, of course, Schindler and Buddha have passed away because they were older cats. So then we were preparing to move for a year. And then there's always something. There's always some reason why it's not a good time. But now that we're here, I don't know. There's so many different rescue organizations here that it's just kind of natural. It's a natural gravitation I have. And they say the rescue animal will find you. Um and there's a ma- there's a macaw that lives on the floor of birds. my apartment building. Well, I listen to him every night. His name's Roberto. And so I strain to hear him after dinner when I'm doing the dishes. I can hear him. He's so active at night. He's so so talkative and I don't know whether that's his time out or close to their door or whatever the case is, but now I think that I'm really open to everything. 
not necessarily just a dog. I've had love for a snail. A oh, giant I'm not surprised. Snail. Wow. Lynx and I are big animal lovers. Mm-hmm. And I've adopted animals over the years. I've adopted birds. Aww. And we had two shih tzus. Aww. And you're right. They just, they heal. Yeah, they really do. Yeah, they're and so therapeutic. Here in Ontario, I've just, I've, I have a boyfriend at my manager's house who's a cardinal that keeps coming to that. Oh, of course, I am convinced it's the same bird. Mm. But he keeps coming. And then the other day, there was a... Um, a uh, blackbird, I think, red wing blackbird or whatever. And so I thought the cardinal was the it. sign of a grandparent coming. Oh, to visit interesting. You. I don't know. Something along those lines. Oh, I'm going to have to look into that. Yeah, we'll have to look into that. I love that stuff. Um, you are also an animal rights activist and vegan. Mm-hmm. Uh, any advice for those curious about um, being vegan, becoming vegan? And are you involved in any specific organizations? with animals um you know i i try and spread it out like i really do um there's the wishing well sanctuary here it's in bradford um i like them saints rescue um is an end of life place in mission bc for animals farm animals and there's um uh toronto wildlife center they do a lot of rehabilitation of found and orphaned wildlife i really like them i mean there's a million um being a vegan is the easiest thing anyone can ever do people just overthink it all the time they just make it so complicated which is not necessary there's nothing to think about it's so it's cheaper it's easier i mean it's cheaper if you eat like a normal person and not like have to have like fancy vegan meats and stuff um i've always been the same kind of vegan i eat an apple a banana an orange uh, a tomato a zucchini a cucumber you know every day i eat the same it never changes i used to eat mono meals but i didn't call it that i didn't know it was that i just knew if i ate only cucumbers like seven of them (laughs) then i'm not going to get gas but if i eat all those cucumbers and a tomato and an avocado and nuts bad news (laughs) so just based on that and being on tour i always had a stomach ache and so i always navigated what's not going to give me a stomach ache eating three bananas for breakfast works for me eating three bananas with granola does not work for me so that's kind of how being a raw vegan started it was an accident it wasn't called anything when I started eating that way. I just ate that way because it just worked. Well, it works naturally. And when you think about different uh, ti- uh, like things have different times to digest. If you eat an apple, it's digesting right away in your mouth uh, as soon as your saliva hits it. Uh, same with watermelon. Like I won't eat melon at all unless I'm going to be alone for days. Otherwise, it's just I'm going to have a stomach ache. Literally, it's always about that. Um, eating tofu hot dogs and tofu pizzas and fake cheese and stuff I think is great for a lot of people who really enjoy eating like that anyway and they're, they want to be a vegan. Those substitutions are important because uh, it helps them to do that. But for someone like me, I just would never eat anything like that because it'll give me a stomach ache. Mm-hmm. So that's basically the just the way I getting eat. Getting in touch with your own body, figuring well, out what works. Well, it just works. doesn't work. Like, I just couldn't, like, risk having a gut ache yeah. all the time. So that, you know, and that's how I became a raw food vegan. Someone pointed it out to me. And I was like, oh, I guess so. And then I was diagnosed with breast cancer when I was 36. And all I wanted was 
yams cooked and all I wanted was brown rice cooked mm. and they take away your raw vegan card if you eat that stuff so then I was like all right <laughs> I'm not a raw vegan anymore okay I don't care yeah. and now I find I just balance it out a lot um, sometimes we eat rice at home sometimes we don't and I just still eat the same way I think I always will I've never had a boyfriend who was a vegetarian or a vegan I don't know. I always dated bodybuilders because I only had the gym, mm -hmm. nothing else. Mm -hmm. um, they all ate. I just, I just never met anybody who was a vegan until Twitter. Like mm -hmm. I just didn't meet anybody. My band was never a vegan or a veg. My family was never vegetarian. And uh, my current husband, uh, Steve, who I married in 2016, he will never like vegetables period the end and that's just how god made him yeah and i kind of go well look at it this way this is my religion and that's yours so i know that a lot of families can coexist uh, in the same home being different religions and that's just kind of how i view it uh i still i still love him and uh and he still loves me he's he doesn't like beets <laughs> and I don't like meat. <laughs> That's it. Aww. So in your book, you talk about like the sexism you experienced while building your career, but also the benefits of being the only girl on the bill sometimes. And you have a couple decades of experience now. Uh, are you seeing a change in the industry? And where can we improve still? Um, well, today's panel is a perfect example of that. I think that the, it wasn't addressed. Like I missed the panel this morning that was about women. It's called The Future is Female. The Future is Female. And the overall message was the future is everybody and we all need to work together and there needs to be inclusion, diversity, everybody. Absolutely. I agree 100%. Um, the panel that I did on touring didn't, uh, to me, it was too short. Mm -hmm. uh, and my experience clearly is nothing like the experience of some of the gentlemen who are on the panel with me. Uh, I've been faced with a promoter that, uh, you know, told me I had to sexually service his bouncers before they would pay me, for example, you know. And so at the time, you know, being a, I think, 24-year-old girl tour manager, I had to try and navigate fear, rage, all these things in one moment because I still had to get paid. Yeah. Um, and so often my... Um, knee-jerk mechanism is always going to be humor. I'm always going to turn it into a joke or go, ha-ha, you're so funny, or whatever I'm going to do. And that has served me very well in my life, in my career and personal life. And I think it's probably true for any woman, if she works in a hospital or if she works in a, a, a lawyer's office or anything you do. Having a sense of humor is always going to help you navigate the bullshit. And there will always be bullshit. It doesn't matter what job we have. And, you know, the thing about it is, and it's just my perspective, and I have a lot of great feminist activist girlfriends who argue with me, and which is great. But for me in my life, I just don't take it personally, man, because I know for sure that I am just a different kind of resiliency when it comes to that type of bullshit, say, than my mother. My mother would take a bad comment or a derogatory remark. She will take it very hard. It will 
be to her emotional detriment. It may affect her long term. It may affect her self-esteem for days or months. And for me, uh, even if it's going to affect me, I'm going to either eat it at the time because I have to um, or I feel I have to. You go by the panel that I was on today. Um, And it's served me well. And I have been able to kind of get past those things and not hold them against uh, people working in the business because that's how the only way I'm going to help educate that individual who's literally behaving in an incorrect way mm-hmm. is by, you know, trying to be an example of, yeah, that's really great, but that's not how we're going to do it. Okay. So anyway, and not getting hysterical yeah. and not, you know, and not, although I might at later time get hysterical, I don't know everything. Um, uh, and I've learned a lot. What would have made me mad at 25 does not make me mad at 45. Uh, or I laugh about it. Mm-hmm. Or I see it differently. I view it differently. Or I go, that individual has mommy issues. Or that individual has authority issues. Or that individual is sexist. Or that in- you know, whatever. Um, but it'll make me understand it more so that I don't take it on. I think the socialization of women and and young women, and I work a lot with children, and Mm. just the way our youth is growing up to just not be kind of boxed in Mm -hmm. in terms of gender roles and things like that. Um, I think that a lot of people, and I mean, there's even a podcast I listen to that they have a tagline called Fuck Politeness. Oh, very good. Fuck Politeness. It's very much time's up, and it's like, if that were to happen today and somebody were to tell a 25-year-old mm-hmm. girl to go service, um, you know, my my crew members, then she could just yell, time's up, motherfucker. Right. <laughs> like, no, things are sure. really changing. But oh, it's wild are. that, you know, you're sitting here telling the stories of, like, this is what happened. Mm-hmm. You experienced it. And, and hopefully that's never going to happen anymore. It's time's up. Like it's I don't happening. know that that's a case, though, because I, I don't just know think either. in this world, um, uh, I think that there it's not that there's a lot of work to be done. Mm. It's that there's a, still a lot of human beings who are inherently flawed. And uh, I saw, I think everybody saw the video of a woman in Lesbridge, Alberta yesterday um, just being the most racist, terrible person to these other fellows in a, a restaurant. And of course, now in the day and age of iPhone, it goes viral and everybody poo-poos it and goes, oh, she's terrible. Well, I get mad because I go, a, she's giving women a bad name. So anyone who acts out like that, I always go, you're fucking it up for the rest of us. But also, I think the same is true for men. And I think men who behave badly towards women, other men are starting to call them out. And that's what's going to make the difference. Not that women call them out, because that's that's part of the problem yeah. for them, because that's their issue. But I think other men stepping in and going, this, we can't tolerate this. You can't, Dude, you make all of us look bad. I think that's how it's going to change. And I think that there was never any sensitivity, you know, when I started. And a lot of people can tisk tisk that. But I have to sit here and go, you know, I can't bemoan it. I can't begrudge it. I can't go, that's a shame that that wasn't that way. No, I can go, you know what? I stuck it out long enough to see that the world is different today. And that is such an amazing thing to witness to kind of go wow in my lifetime you know I can look at say my buddy Jordan Alexander who's a young artist here in Toronto 
And I go, no one's going to ever talk to her that way because she's going to know in her mind that that's not correct. And whereas when I was her age, I'd be like, oh, I have to eat this. You know, I have to take this and listen to this and, you know, try and squirm my way out of this situation to get paid or or to be respected or whatever it is. It's also people like you telling these stories that are making it, you know, known that this is the world this is the way the world used to be and mm-hmm. why that's not okay now. Not at all. We didn't have a Time's Up movement. There d- wasn't anything like that. And, you know, and the thing with Me Too, Me Too is a really, uh, it's a weird concept if you are living on the streets. It's a weird concept if you are a woman who ha- is in an abusive relationship, you know. So we can look at... Um, domestic violence for example or violence against women and we can say you know it should there should be no class barrier so women who are marginalized women who have multiple barriers they you know they don't get to have a hashtag they really don't and they've always had a sorority an unspoken sorority you know it's a knowing look it's a, a safety net that they've had underground you know communication ways now you know you have people in the public eye who are accomplished successful maybe even wealthy often white women who you know, are empowered and speaking out for the first time. Mm -hmm. But a lot of these marginalized voices are still not going to be heard over that. And my hope is that it becomes more inclusive. Currently, I don't necessarily know if it's as inclusive as it should be. Um, You know, when, when the Women's March happened originally, I was, like, super angry because I thought, where were all these ladies when I was trying in chemo, for example, and walking with all these girls who were really empowered, having these pink ribbons? You know, they all had pink ribbons. And then a couple um, documentaries came out saying, "Oh, it's um, you know, it's ma- it's a money-making machine. It's it's bullshit." But that was a symbol for these women. It gave them hope and gave them a sorority. You know, but a lot of people wouldn't come to march with them at their run for the cures and at their things because they said, no, you're just giving the money to a big charity. You're not helping it or whatever the reasons were. And I kind of felt like, man, I had to eat a lot of shit for supporting this ribbon stuff. And then the vagina hats were such a big deal and people were giddy and they were excited and happy. I was like, where the fuck were you, man? Like, Mm -hmm. where were you when these you know girls were going through their health crisis and you were shitting on them and here you are marching because of whoever Donald Trump whatever reasons and uh, also with the murdered and missing indigenous women why aren't you doing those walks why where are you on Valentine's Day you know with your vagina hat or whatever and so it took me a little bit of time to get on the bandwagon with the women's march and the different movements that are happening now. Now I think every, every, every reason to march is good. But when it first started, it took me a while. Mm-hmm. It's important to remember, even if a cause isn't affecting you personally, it's affecting many other women. Mm-hmm. And we all got to band together. Any oh, yes. what we get. Absolutely. 
Agreed. Mm-hmm. Important conversations, and it's a good start, and mm-hmm. it's certainly going to make me think about some things as well. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So one thing that you didn't really go into much detail about in the book was your acting work. Mm. Um, can you talk a little bit about your experiences in front of the camera? And is that something that we can expect a little bit more of in the future? Well, you know, I hope so. Um, I changed my actra to Toronto actra. Um, ultimately, you know, I always think that I could be cast as Danny Trejo's twin. If you know that. I don't know who that is. I do. He he plays a criminal. He plays a a Latino (laughs) criminal all the time. Because I always think as as an aging woman in the business, in the entertainment business with tattoos, you know, I get cast as convicts. uh, And I like it. When I was young, I would always get cast as a singer. And it annoyed me to no end. Because I just thought, I don't want to play a singer. That's what I do. I want to play something else. But that seemed to be the only thing that I would get called to audition for. Um, I did a feature film called Lunch with Charles uh, where I got to play a singer. But she was a folk singer, and it was a principal part, and it was an indie film, and uh, Nick Lee was in it, and this actor from Hong Kong, Sean Lau, also known as Lau Ching Wan, and he's... The, they're both very talented and the director was utterly lovely and the crew was amazing and nurturing and it was a l- long shooting days and it was the most wonderful introduction into that industry that nothing will ever compare to it. After that I was cast as a drag king. Oh yeah, in the old word? No, well that was a different one. Oh. This was ca- a movie called The Crossing. And uh, I was a drag king that played a strong arm for the Russian mafia. And I wanted to do the part because I got weapons training to do it. And at the time, I was studying martial arts, and it was really important to me to, you know, try and do more fighting in in film and stuff. I was really heavily into it. Um, And that was great because I got to play this character that was absolutely the opposite of my regular personality. Um, and after that, you know, I just kept getting these calls to, I I always said either a junkie, a hooker, or a singer, junkie, hooker, singer, junkie. And I was like, I'm not interested. I want to play a cop. I want to play the, you know, it was always, I I think that's like a, a problem with that industry in general Mm -hmm. with like women's roles, you know, the prostitute, the, yeah. And if you have tattoos and I mean, fair enough, you know, it was just, I was, it just didn't nothing really interested me and plus having these two little dogs I just couldn't stand to be on a set for 18 hours a day and you know not have anyone to care for my animals so it kind of fell by the wayside I did some hosting for a martial arts TV show called Bodog Fight which I loved I got to travel to Russia Costa Rica got to interview all the fighters um, and that was something I really enjoyed uh, there was a show here uh, that was um, a production. I don't know if it was an MTV production or if it was a much music production. But I was auditioning against another girl who did get the part. But I thought that would have been a fun hosting job too. Um, but I'm glad I didn't do it because then I went on to make Super Beautiful Monster Record, which I really liked, and and everything else that happened. Now that I'm here, I think, I don't know, hopefully I'll do some more of that 
That'd be so much and fun. cops can have tattoos too. Well, now, exactly. and it doesn't matter because yeah. you can wear your long sleeve cop shirt. Yes. So, uh, about one of your friends in your book, you said the divinity in me saw the divinity in her. When did, in your process, did you discover yoga and what does that mean to you? Well, fair. when we were young girls, we were um, into Hare Krishna because a lot of the bands that we liked were Krishna punks. And so they were straight edge bands and they were like punk rock and they were like Hare Krishna. That's nuts. an interesting mix. So there was a band that we particularly identified with called Shelter. And Shelter was a Hare Krishna band and we loved them. We were like huge fans. And so that was easy for my parents to swallow just because they tried to keep uh, Hinduism in our life just from being born in India. They just kept that always surrounding us along with their Christian beliefs and stuff. So I had a real um, appetite for different theologies. Yoga was always in our world um, just because it was always part of the Vedas and it was just part of everything we knew. One of my dear friends uh, became a yoga instructor when I think we were like 20. And so we've always done Ashtanga. Shanti's a yoga instructor too. Oh. And I started with Ashtanga. Yes. And I mean, we we were always into it. And uh, I don't know. I think that different styles found me throughout my life. Like right now I'm obsessed with Kundalini and the joyful Kundalini yoga means everything to me. And I think a lot of people, especially living in Vancouver anyway, I don't know what it's like here, but yoga is uh, it's extremely classist because it's 120 bucks a month. And what I mean is some of the classes are by donations in a lot of these schools, but most of them really aren't. And so, you know, thank God for the Internet because people who are uh, do who do have barriers uh, – can still access yoga classes and and educate themselves and we ha- we had so many books on yoga there used to be a juva mukti school here uh over near uh, massey hall and it's i don't think it's there anymore but i remember we used to go and and we were really into juva mukti stuff and and now you know there's bliss yoga up on blur that i've been to a couple times they have a, a really gentle hatha that i like and um i've really nice kundalini class that I like. But for me, yoga is not fitness anymore, although it was when I was younger. It was both. And Ashtanga, I loved the Mysore practice. It was, you know, as rigorous as I wanted it to be. It's hardcore. Yes, and it was great. And now I just find that I'm into, you know, I'm into the the spiritual connection of yoga more than I was when I was younger. Yeah, it started from the outer, yeah. which is that the Anamaya Kosha, and right. then you work your way in. That's right. Yeah, it's yeah, it's really fun. Really amazing. Lynx is going to start. Yeah. Oh, yeah, good. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful. It's great having a podcast partner who can lead the way. Oh, so. exactly. <laughs> and my friend, you know, that's uh, that's how I got into it, because my girlfriend was a, an instructor. I'm looking for a good kundalini class. We mm-hmm. don't offer it at our studio for some reason, mm-hmm. so I'll, I'll maybe look up that one on Bluer. Um, this kind of goes nicely into the next question. When you went solo, you said that you were thriving creatively and blossom- blossoming musically. I felt like I had found my niche. Little did I know my niche had found me. Huh. So can you talk a little bit about the balance between going after your dream and going after things and then allowing things to find you? 
Well, I think what we think is going to happen never does. And better things happen anyway as a result of our effort really is the bottom line. And um, I was very fearful of being a solo artist. Again, I thought it was cheesy, conceited, all these things. I just was embarrassed. I mean, I I didn't want anyone, and it was literally worried about what all the other punks were going to think of me. I didn't want them to think that I thought I was better than anyone else. It was just kind of how it was going. And um, as a result, I was able to write songs about um, you know, sexual assault. I was about. I was able to write songs about heartache without having the rest of the band whining and whining at me about these girl songs, and uh, and I did really blossom and thrive in a way that I hadn't previously been able to. That's amazing. Um, you are a proud cancer survivor, and in your book, you even say it's the best thing that ever happened to you since it, you know, revealed to you like what you're capable of and led you down this other amazing path. Uh, would you talk a little bit about the volunteer work you do and how like this whole experience has changed you? Um, I think volunteering was something that um, uh, kind of came naturally for me just because I'm a kind of a people person. I'm gregarious anyway. I like people. I like being around people. And um, uh, meeting the other girls in the chemo wards was really how it started. Uh, they just needed peer-to-peer mentoring. Although it wasn't really called that, it was just like, you know, can you, you've been two months into your treatment and I'm only two weeks into mine, can we have a talk about it? And that's really how it started, very organically. And getting into palliative care, uh, volunteering was just because I was asked. There was no other uh, reason for it. It's not like I, you know, woke up one day and said, I want to, I want to work in this area of healthcare. It was because I kept getting Facebook messages from someone saying, you know, my my daughter's in palliative care, and like you, she's, you know, experiencing breast cancer. It would really me- mean a lot to us if you came by and said hi to her. And don't get me wrong, I was absolutely terrified and just thought, I have nothing to offer this poor individual. Like, it's so terrible. But you cannot say no to that. Yeah. I mean, I just didn't think, how can I say no, even if I don't want to do this? I can't say no to this. And the more often I wound up in these wards and and with the patient, often the patient not even being really that responsive or coherent, just being around the families and discovering what these families needed. Mm -hmm. Um, They needed a break. They needed to go get a coffee. They needed to go get a shower. Uh, They just needed to feel like there was something that they were doing to um, provide some you know, joy for their loved one. And it just made me discover there was a a need for this exact type of volunteering. Mm -hmm. And I thought a lot of people probably can't do this or don't want to do it. But I think that I probably can. I'm probably, you know, I like it. I'm good at it. I should just offer my services to do this. And every year in Vancouver, I miss the training. They have orientation you're supposed (laughs) to take. And that's in October, and it was like I was always on tour, and it was like, oh my God, I'm not allowed to be here. And then I would get asked to go in again by a family member, and be like, I can't <laughs> say no. So, and that's just really how it happened. And and here, when I moved um, to Toronto, I knew that that's the area I wanted to to work in with volunteering. I'm only really allowed so many hours of my time, according to my manager, uh, that I can just volunteer and I think that's the area that 
I could probably be of the most help. Amazing. We just have a few more left. Thank, thank you for you. being so generous with your time. No, thank you for the interview. This is this really lights us on fire. So you've always been a trailblazer, thank you, uh, in your career and more recently um, in being an active voice in discussing menopause in a world where discussions of that sort mm-hmm. aren't even right now being had as much as they should be. Right. Um, we love that you turn what could be negatives into positives. And so what made you decide to share your journey in that sense? Well, I think I was in menopause for a long time. I didn't know it. I was anorexic. Again, without really knowing that I was anorexic, because my weight never dipped down to like 60 pounds. You know, I never puked up my chocolate cake because we tried. It didn't work. So, you know, it didn't work. But um, I I was very underweight and I was so, uh, I was doing so many shows, like 300 shows a year, 320 shows a year for how many years? 90 minutes show eating only apples, or if they have no apples in Bratislava and only beer and boiled meat, I didn't eat anything. Or well, it's just like, what are you going to do? So I, I became quite underweight, but also we were uh, we were either in bikinis or half tops all the time, and there's just no room for uh, being bloated. You know, we would get body image messed up in the head, and uh, I never got a period. I stopped getting a period when I was 25. And that was really the end of it. So not having a period from 25 to 36 and then being diagnosed with breast cancer and going through chemotherapy, um, you know, they're like, your period will stop. And I'm like, oh, joy. Like, I didn't get one anyway. So it was no different. Um, Having night sweats and hot flashes, they were always happening for me because I was orthorexic I overexercised. I was too active I didn't get enough nutrients I was underweight I wasn't experiencing anything except perimenopause all the time so it wasn't a stretch for me once they took my ovaries out with my cancer treatment I was in full menopause and everyone's like oh it's terrible and I'm like um this is the norm it is the norm and for me it really wasn't a big deal I think that I mean it was annoying you know getting night sweats is annoying because you if you want to get a boyfriend you don't want him to come over and then you like sweat like a dude and you wake up like a dude and your sheets are wet and then you're freezing because you woke up and now your sheets are wet I mean it's just stupid stuff but it it does uh, affect your self-confidence and your self-esteem but truthfully I think that our grandmothers and our mothers uh, didn't talk about it there's a lot of stigma attached to it just like there is with periods. Yeah. Oh, she's on her rag. Okay. I laughed when you mentioned that thing about being on your period on tour. And like we looked <laughs> yeah. around. Like, oh, and they was? all stopped talking to me after that. Let me tell you, they oh. didn't look at me anymore. <laughs> and I was <laughs> like, was okay, we're not. Obviously, we're not going down this road. <laughs> yeah. But you know, it's really the truth. And and with menopause, I think that it's just our parents didn't talk about it, and mood swings and all this stuff. I don't know. You know, it's all the same. Nothing really changes except you're liberated from your pad. Yeah. Really. I don't know. I don't see any, like, downside to not having a period anymore and being in menopause. You know, I can't bemoan the fact that they took my ovaries out and that I didn't have a baby. I can't really begrudge it because, I don't know, 
you know, I don't know. My boobs are already weird. Like they never made milk. Well, you know, I'm not going to cry about it. That's life. Rather be healthy. Well, that's the thing. I'm alive and I think menopause is really fun. I recommend it for anyone. All right. Do you want to try it in a few years? (laughs) (laughs) Don't think I have a choice. (laughs) I don't know. I think it's just normal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we love your new single, Hotbox ah, Girls. Thank it's so you. much fun. And, Good. Uh, playing it nonstop. We okay. were curious, are you going to be making more music? Should we expect a record? Are you playing shows? Yes, yes, and we're yes. So you. we've been making a record for a year. I wrote two records that were shelved. In 2013, I had a record called The Jakarta Project. And it was all dance music. And last year, we formed a project called Snake in the Chain so that I could go on tour and perform that music which heavy was a part of um and there was uh, a couple other uh, other songs that were from the original jakarta project that we put out with snake in the chain that were fun and nowadays i don't know when you got nine inch nails touring on an ep and a lot of young artists today they'll tour on an ep um it, it's hard to say whether or not people need to put out full albums although I still buy full albums and I still like it we made a record uh, we started making this record probably a year and a half ago and we just keep revising it and revising it and so in the meantime we've released Heavy and then now we've released Hotbox Girls which is they're both songs from that upcoming record I'm so excited for it. Good. I'm glad. Me too. Thank you for being so open and so inspiring and living your life. Like, it's an orchard of cherries with millions of butterflies. It's just, that's that's how I love seeing people live their lives with that kind of attitude. And it's really inspiring. And thank you. Thanks, guys. Nice meeting you, Toronto (laughs) neighbors. Have you ever watched a futuristic sci-fi movie and wondered, but wait, could any of this really happen? And will I live long enough to see it? That's what our show Hypothetical is about. I'm Carrie Bechet, and on this podcast, we ask what-if questions about the future. Like, what if we could read minds? What if the world's digital data was erased all at once? What would happen if the Yellowstone supervolcano erupted? Then we explore that question two ways, through speculative science fiction and through dialogue with brilliant scientists. The result is a genre-bending narrative that's interwoven with real facts provided by literal geniuses. And, spoiler alert, a lot of the science fiction out there, it's not nearly as far-fetched as you might think. Come time travel with me into the future on Hypothetical. New episodes on Tuesdays available on all your favorite podcast apps. Just search Hypothetical. That's H Y P E R T H E T I C A L.